So jumping into Mark, the last two weeks, uh, remember I said we're going to have three successive interactions with the members of the Sanhedrin. The first one was the Pharisees and uh, their little in-house issue with the Herodians. Should we follow Rome or should we not? They try to get Jesus to weigh in. The second one was the Sadducees who have their little in-house debate going on with the Pharisees. Is there a resurrection? Is there not? Trying to get Jesus to weigh into that one. Um, But these are not legitimate questions. They were not truly seeking an answer. They were trying to set Jesus up and prove their point at the same time. They didn't want a biblical response. They didn't really care what God had to say. And so today's text, we've got the the third major group within the Sanhedrin, the scribes. These are the the scholars of the Sanhedrin. So they send a representative to ask Jesus a question that is essential to faith. And we're going to deal with an issue of real consequence this morning, even if they were just trying to set Jesus up. The Bible gives us a lot of encouragement and insight here into the mind of Christ and the mind of God. And so before we get into our text, I just want to encourage and challenge you this morning. This needs to be a lesson, especially what we looked at in the last couple weeks, for us to hold fast to the main things. The things that are of first importance, the things that are of eternal consequence. And so like we saw the last couple weeks, petty theological debates are nothing new and there's no shortage of it. So I just want to give a couple exhortations. Theology students, it is good to know the issues, but know the scriptures and don't major on the minors. We have to be careful because if you read Jesus, he is not agonizing over every little jot and tittle. He declares the word of God, but most importantly, it is repent and believe so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. But also, too, as we get closer to another membership class and those of you who are members here or considering membership, we will hold fast to what is essential. Where scripture speaks clearly, we will speak boldly and we will not waver from it. But where scripture does not, we can have charity in the 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 non-essentials we can have freedom in christ if we dis if we differ on secondary or tertiary things and so i think that's important in a a day of of sound bites and uh cancel culture there's a lot of finger pointing going with going on within the church within evangelicalism broadly so we got to be careful to make sure we know what our main things what our essential things and what our pet issues for us that we can tend to divide over. Uh, And obviously there was that going on then, and I think it will go on until the Lord returns. So let's look at something that does matter uh, truly this morning, even if the scribes don't fully understand the implications. So I'm going to read in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. 
And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all the strength and to love one another, or excuse me, love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and glorious and awesome. May your name be hallowed on our lips, in our hearts, in our minds. May our actions be unto you. Help us, Lord. It is not easy in our flesh to love you well. Our hearts deceive us. Our minds confuse us. Our actions lead us astray. Apart from you, we could not love you. Apart from you giving us new life, there is no hope. Lord, like we sung earlier, not our will, but your will be done. Help us who believe that struggle and unbelief whose love for you wavers and sways and whose love for one another is poor at best. Lord, give us the strength and the wisdom and the determination to walk with you, to continue with you. Because you are God of steadfast love. You are God who is unchanging. You are God who is merciful and gracious and patient with us. Help us to love one another well. And help us to, as we read the scriptures, that we would not just read them as consumers, but read it not just for information, but for transformation. That our hearts, our minds, and our actions would glorify and honor you. And everything we say and do, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the third of these interactions with the scribes. Now, the scribes, are they're, they're the academics, the scholars of the Sanhedrin. Now, as implied in the rides, they are, in the name, they are scribes. They write out the scriptures. But, most, but most, mostly what they do is they are pouring over the scriptures day and night. They are opening the scrolls for exposition you know, for pulling out what is, what is in, for explaining what's in the text, and interpretation. What does this really mean? These are their primary functions. So, the, the Sadducees had the kind of political rule. The Pharisees had the, the moral grap on, gr- grasp on Jewish life. And the scribes were the one they went to to solve debates. What's going on here? What, what does this say? What does this mean? And so that was kind of their, their function. So that's the first thing you want to know. This is, this is an analytical scholarly type. He's been in his room. He's been in the synagogue with the scrolls, with the books, going over them again and again and again, and he knows them well. And so when he approaches Jesus, he's, he's coming with some ammunition. And when one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. So it's interesting here. He comes prepared, as we're going to see in a moment in Matthew but he's also watching and it gives us a picture of what's going on in the temple. You know, kind of picture this, that Jesus is going to the temple every day. 
He goes and sleeps in Bethany and comes back and he teaches and he interacts. And so there's a dispute going on. It's not like this private dispute in the corner. Other people are watching. We've all seen this. When an argument happens, when a fight happens, a crowd comes together. Imagine if there were cell phones then. I mean, everyone would have their their, their phones out because these these titans, these, these scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are held in high regard by the Jews and this new teacher that everyone is scared of but amazed by. And a crowd forms. And think about this day after day. Jesus is getting peppered with questions. He's he's teaching. He's turning over tables. A lot of attention is being brought to him. And this this scribe comes up. But the tone here is a little bit different. Seeing that he answered them well. Mark kind of speaks of, of him favorably. But Matthew adds an important detail in Matthew 22 34. Matthew adds this. The scribes, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had a plan of their own. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So they were emboldened by what we saw last week. The Sadducees ask, who's going to be married to who in the resurrection? Jesus says, you're wrong. And so the Sadducees or the, the Pharisees are emboldened because this, the, the squabbles that they have with the Sadducees, Jesus put them in their place. So now they see that he silenced the Sadducees. They gather together. And, and one of them, a lawyer. So when you read the scriptures, Matthew often uses lawyer. So it's not this, the, 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 our idea of lawyer as in he pleads legal cases. He will do that in terms of Jews, but he's an expert in the law. That's what they mean by lawyer. It's a synonym for scribe. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So even though Mark speaks on him favorably, Matthew kind of pulls back the the curtain a little bit. This is also part of the plot. Now, we don't know this particular scribe's heart. It seems like he's not as confrontational as the other Pharisees, as as the other scribes have been. Um, And he seems to have some kind of discernment knowing that Jesus answered well. And so he asked a very important question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, we get on the surface, this is a good question. But there's much more at stake for the Jews than we understand. By their count, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Most of them spoken of as a negative, many spoken of as a positive. And this is a debate that was going on uh, in Judaism for hundreds of years before Jesus, in in the rabbinical period, and then hundreds of years after if you read the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, there will be different opinions on what is the greatest commandment. Some of them being 20 years before Jesus, there was a rabbi Hillel. And so he used a, a version of what Jesus taught. He used it negatively. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. That's 20 years before Jesus's birth. And... Um, Again, this is a question that would get raised over and over. 135 AD, about 100 years after Jesus, Rabbi Akiba says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. 100 years later, 235 AD, another said, in all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. They're getting it right. They're, they're, They're quoting scripture and bringing in commandments. 30 years after that, 
Rabbi Simulel says the righteous will live by faith. So think about this. 250 years after the life of Jesus, the rabbis are still debating this. They're still asking this. It's kind of like the rabbi's version of who has the best chicken sandwich. It's just like a never-ending debate. But this is also an important practice. That rabbis were to defend their, their positions. And it was common for a younger student, a younger rabbi, or rabbis to ask one another, what is your opinion on this? Where do you stand on this? So the fact that they asked him shows that they had respect, or at least fear for him. And they knew that the people saw him authoritatively, so they're bringing him in to this age-old debate. What's amazing in the beauty of Scripture is that by their, their question, the Holy Spirit uses that to give us Jesus' insight. I mean, think how important this text is to us to understand what is most important for the people of God. And it comes from someone trying to test Jesus. The wisdom of God's word is that even what man intends for evil, God intends for good. And it ends up being beneficial to us. So let's look at how Jesus responds. We read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter six, Jesus answered, the most important is. The first, the primary, this is before all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema in Hebrew. So then it was customary for Jews to recite it in the morning, recite it in the evening. They would open synagogue services with it. Even today, observant Jews will recite it at least once a day. The reminder they would never forget. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a powerful statement of God's sovereign simplicity. He is indivisible. There is no factions within him. There is no faltering. There is no changing. God is one and he is the only one. He is unique. There is none other. So this was very familiar to the hearts and minds of every Jew. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Again and again, they would, they would say this and they, they know this. The Lord our God. In your Old Testament's in Deuteronomy, Lord is all caps here. This is the divine name. Yahweh, the, the, the covenant name, our God. The God who has called us out of paganism. Who called us out of Egypt. He is our God. He has covenanted with us. This is his name. So much so that they would not even speak it. The most observant Jews today would say Hashem, the name, because they don't even want to say they don't even want to attribute a name to God. The Lord, our God. This is a prayer of Israel. This is a prayer of the people of God. He is one. He is the one. He is the only. He is, there is none like him. That is the most important. But it's not just a propositional truth. There is a heart intent that follows along with it because Jesus continues. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6 flows out of verse 4. 
Verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength. Spend a few moments there. First, we need to understand love biblically. I do this often, but we need to because the world around us speaks of love often. And so, and, and so often we get the world's idea conflated with a biblical idea of love. In the Bible, um, in the Old Testament, let's stick with the Old Testament. The main word for, for love has a lot of variances, but there's, there's, there's several words for love. It's an act of care. It's always an act. It is, is an action. It's a verb. Act of care, affection, loyalty, friendship, covenant love. It implies intimacy, closeness between two persons. But this is not the perverse distortion of our, of our culture. There is no sex implied here. There is no romance implied here. This is not butterflies and fuzzy feelings. This is commitment and devotion to someone who is not yourself. So that's why this word is important. This is this is comprehensive. You cannot love someone partially. There is no half hearted love biblically. So the word is not thrown around. This is very different from the distortion that we see and hear. The world has a lot to say about love. And most often it comes down to either how do I feel or who do I want to sleep with? That's really what the, what the world boils love down to. Biblically, it is neither of those. You shall love the Lord your God. Notice how this changes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is a command on all of Israel. He is our God covenantally. But you must love your God. There is no covenant without the people in the covenant. Each person must love the Lord their God. And the, the language here is strong. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. With, in the Hebrew, is literally out of, from the source of. Not just with part of your heart, not on the surface, but from the very depths and center of your heart. Out of your mind, what comes out of your, your mind, what comes out of your soul, what comes out of your strength. All of it. Whole, the whole thing. Undivided. And so I briefly want to look at each of these, these concepts. Because many people have tried to define them, define them. But the truth is, these are not concrete ideas. There is not a set definition for any of them. They are more of symbolic concepts. And there's a bit of overlap and complement to one another. So the point here is not what does heart mean? What does mind mean? The point here is all of you. Nothing left out. It's not specifically what each of them are. But that you, your whole self, all of your faculties... There is no part of you that does not submit to the Lord your God. But it is important to know what the Hebrews had in mind when they said these things. So first, with all of your heart. This is the, the core of your being, your identity, the main spring of your, of your existence. 
This is who you are. This is what makes you you and different from some other you. Our hearts are synonymous with our identity. Look at uh, Proverbs 4.23 is helpful here. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. But then soul is, is very similar. So nefesh in the Hebrew, it's soul or it's life. So heart is a little more of kind of what makes you you. Soul is what makes you alive. Animals have souls. Animals are alive in, 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 the, in the Hebrew sense. It's, it's the, the breath within your lungs. The fact that you are living, that's what your soul is. Look at Job 33, 28. And I could go to a million of these. I mean, the, the Psalms and the, uh, the poetic literature are filled with the talk of the soul. But you'll, you'll see the parallelism here. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. And my life shall look upon the light. You see how soul and light are compared to one another. My soul is redeemed. Therefore, my life, which is also redeemed, will look upon the light. It is no longer in the pit. So you've got heart, you've got soul, you've got mind. This is not in the text in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it is heart, soul, and strength. Jesus adds this because by the time of Christ, the, the Greek concept of understanding and mind and intellect had arisen. And so Jesus, as he can, is adding to the scriptures. In case you forgot, even your, 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 your brain, even all this philosophy that the, the Greeks are obsessed with, even this submits to God. And so he applies this Old Testament text to a contemporary understanding. And then the fourth one we should understand. This is pretty simple. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength. This is not how much you can bench press. This is your abilities. This is your effort. This is your, your work. Everything that you do, the, the, the work of your, your hands. If you truly understand who God is. If he is your God. It is not enough to know him. How could you not love him? How could you let your heart go after someone or something else? How could you let your, your, your life be devoted, your soul be devoted to someone or something else? How could let your, you, you let your, your mind be warped and distorted to something else? How could you give your, your efforts to another God? It's amazing how God has created our bodies. You ever think about that? That every part works in perfect harmony. We don't. We don't often think about it. But if we run, it's not just our muscles and our ligaments and our tendons and our bones that work together. Our mind has to keep our body going. There has to be breath in our lungs. Our soul needs to keep moving. Our hearts has to be in it. We're going to stop running, which is why I don't run. Because my mind is there. Pretty soon my heart is done and not far after my body is done too. You can't run partially. You can't run and leave your, your, your mind or your heart at home. You need them all to work together. And, and God has created our bodies like this. God has created us where we, we are made up. We are a complex 
body that is made up of all these different faculties, but they must all work together. And last week when the ladies were at the house, they were, they were talking about teaching a child to swim. And they're talking about all of the, the things that are brought into teaching a child to swim. Now, certainly there's, there's, there's muscle memory and teaching them how to move their arms and breath and all that. But there's a, a mental component, too. They have to understand what, what's, what's going on. There's also a heart component. If they are, if they're fearful and, and, they, and they freak out, they're not going to swim. And so the body, the mind, the heart must be brought into it. You know, you, you can't believe, you can't be partially committed to swimming. You, you will drown. If, you're, if your body and the things that your, your mind knows and, and, your, and your, your heart believes will bring you to safety, will bring you to safety. And that's the point here, that God wants all of us. Anything else that is worth doing, we put all of ourselves into it. We're not divided in that. But we are fickle people, if we can be honest. We don't like commitment. We want to reserve part of ourselves for ourselves. God, you can have this, but this part's mine. God, you can have Sunday, but the rest of the week's mine. I want nothing to do with your word or the things of God or the people of God outside of Sunday. I want my I want to carve out my own little space. God's like, no, I want all of them. I redeemed you and I called you so that you would be mine because that's what's best for you. Not just because he's some selfish, jealous God in a negative sense. He is jealous for you because he knows what's best for you. Because he loves you. And he knows that it is his word. That it is his truth that will sustain you and continue you and build you up. This is why we are commanded to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But why doesn't he stop here? Jesus could have. And this would have been true, and it would have been helpful, and it would have been beneficial. And the Pharisees would, would certainly agree. They would agree with everything he just said. The, the Sadducees would have agreed, because in the Torah, the scribes would have agreed. But how could you tell how can you tell if you love the Lord your God? Can I tell whether you love him with all your heart? By just you telling me? Can I tell whether you love him with all your soul, your, your mind, your, your strength? How does anyone know? How does it move beyond the theoretical? Because like the rich young ruler, you could say, I've never killed anyone. I've never stolen anything. But the real question is, have you loved them? You've never broken any of the laws, but where is your heart? How do we put this into concrete practice? I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. I wish I could sing. Anytime I can throw in 80s lyrics, I, I will. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. They didn't ask for a second commandment. But he throws this in as a bonus because this is a companion. This is needed to complement. We must understand that your view of God, your view of the, the vertical relationship, the God in heaven drives the horizontal. If you are truly worshiping the God who is, who is in heaven, it cannot help but resonate and work out here on earth. Neighbor here. The word literally means the one close to you. 
one next to you. It's not overcomplicated. He's quoting here from Leviticus 19.18. Look at the, the, the context. It'll be up on the screen. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Israel's responsibility was toward his brother. This is speaking of the people of Israel, those closest to you. When you walk out your door, who's your neighbor? The one who lives across the street from you, the one who lives next to you. The one who goes to Jerusalem in the, in the temple with you. There is, there is a, a, a proximity to this. Uh, and then Jesus expands on this. So this is their understanding. To care for my neighbor means there is a special concern for the people of Israel that I don't have for other nations. And that's not wrong, but it's, but it's incomplete. Turn to Luke chapter 10. One of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Probably the most well-recognized, often the most cited. Most people know the concept of a good Samaritan. But notice the details here that help complement our text. Look who asked him the question. This is Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer. Remember who a lawyer is? An expert in the law, a scribe, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. He said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Remember, this is the scribe's job. What's written in the law? How do you interpret it? You're the expert. You tell me. And he answers wisely. Verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This guy's a good student. He's paid attention well in the law. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's the answer he wanted. But desiring to justify himself, he wants to show that he's a good Jew. Who's my neighbor? I want to show that I have done this because... Look how I treat Jews. And so Jesus tells this beautiful story of a tragedy. This man who is robbed and beaten and left for dead. A priest walks by. These are the mediators of God's people. They're the ones who, who are in the, the, the temple, who take sacrifices. They should know the grace and mercy of God. And, but because the man is bloody and beaten and unclean, they walk on the other side. A Levite. The priests come from the house of Levi. These are also supposed to be the stand-up religious guys at the time. He walks on the other side. But finally, a Samaritan. These are the half-breeds that worship on the wrong mountain and have no share in the people of Israel. And the Jews hated them. They hated them so much, they would. the irony here is that they would walk around the land of Samaria so that their feet would not touch unholy dirt. But it is the Samaritan who doesn't walk around this bloody mess, but stops, picks him up, pays for his lodging and even leaves extra for his care going forward. So Jesus asked in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice he won't say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pull a couple things from this. 
One, many people feel the temptation and the guilt of trying to love and fix the whole world. You can't. The beauty of love your neighbor is love who's next to you. Love who the Lord puts in front of you. Love who the Lord gives you opportunity for. This is not saying, I need to go out and fix the world and love the world. You are not God. But when he gives you opportunity, when you do have the time to care for someone who is hurting, do it. You should. Show them the grace and love you have been shown. And it begins with who the Lord gives you. The other thing here, though, is not just who is your neighbor. It's not just who is your neighbor, but be a neighbor. Notice the one who proves to be a neighbor. It's not just, well, who should I help and who should I not? That's not the point. The point is care for those who the Lord gives you opportunity to. Be a neighbor is the point of this. Because technically, he was not a part of Israel. And really, the Samaritan had no, uh, had, there was no benefit to him to help an, an Israelite. But this, all, this has to begin somewhere. There's a special provision for this. Since you're already in Luke, turn to John. John chapter 13. Jesus here speaks of a commandment. He calls it a new commandment. It's really a new commandment that is an old commandment. He is not pulling it out of nowhere, but there's a new application to it. There is something specific for the disciples of Christ. John 13 Verse 34 and 35. He says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Notice the connection here. There is no love of neighbor apart from love of Christ. You can't understand how to love someone until you've seen the love of Christ. You also are to love one another. Here's the purpose. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is something that begins in the church. For those people who say, I'm going to go out and, and love people who want nothing to do with, with the, the church. They're missing the point. This is not how Jesus designed it. This is a witness. This, this begins with the people of God who know the love of God, who love one another well. So that they are a witness so that they will know that you are my disciples for your love for one another. That is one of the things that makes me most proud about this body is how well we love one another. I hear this again and again and again when someone comes and, and they are new and they're showered and they are welcomed or they are sick or they are they are hurting. We pray with one another. We visit one another. We encourage one another. We text and, and email and all those and all those things. Keep doing that. That is the sign to the world that we are disciples. If we practice that, that love with one another, it will be easy. And we run into people outside of the church. And so Jesus adds one more thing to this. Love your neighbor. Not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. Love for ourselves is easy. And so let me paraphrase that. I spoke with someone this week. It's like, I don't really love myself. Whether you love yourself or you hate yourself, you are selfish. That's easy. 
Whether you think too high of yourself or too low of yourself, you are selfish. That comes easy for us. To love someone else, you got to stop thinking about yourself. You've got to make you the most important thing in your life for a moment so that you can love someone else. That's not easy. Because other people are not easy to love. I'm easy to love because I, I, I know me. Or I'm hard to love because I know me. But other people are not like me. And so I've got to do things I don't like to do or do things differently that are outside of my little box to love them. Yeah. Love them as yourself. That actually makes it a little bit harder. It's easier to love them as you want to be loved, but, you, but loving them as they need to be loved? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole different set of difficulties. But Jesus says there are none greater than these, bringing them together. Why are these two together? Why are these two so important? There's a great guard on either side of these. One, the guard on the, uh, on the side of mysticism. This kind of disconnected spiritual agreement with, with God, but now no outpouring of the practice. The other side is humanism. They focus only on man never looking to God. Just quickly. On the mysticism side, how many people say they are Christians and they love God, they love Jesus, but they're miserable people? How many people say that they are, that they are Christians and want nothing to do with the people of God? They want nothing to do with, with, with God's word. They don't, they don't pray. They don't read the scriptures. They don't desire the things of God. They just have this mystical idea of who God is. What about on the other side? How often do you hear people's emphasis on the love of man? We've just got to love people. We've got to love people. We've got to love people. I heard someone tell me that I love God by loving people. No, you don't. You can't love God and not, and, and not love the things of God and not love his, his word and not desire him above all else. You can only love people well when you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. That's just humanism. You say all my focus is going to be on people. I'll get to God later. So we need both of these. And so here is the agreement between faith and works. This is this 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 mystery of our salvation. You are justified by faith, your belief and trust in God. And without it, you are it is impossible to please God. And if you have faith, it won't be dead. There will be evidence of it. Because we work out of our faith, we work from faith. We don't work for faith. That's how these two things work together, because we love God and our faith is in him then there will be an outpouring of love in our works. Our faith and our works agree. This is why Paul and James are not in contradiction with one another. We are justified by faith apart from works. Amen. Faith without works is dead. Amen. Because by your love for others, your love for the church, you will show that you are a disciple. You will show that you love God. More on that in a moment. Here's how the scribe responds to Jesus. And the scribe said, if you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You are right, teacher. Last two instances, the Pharisees and the Sadducees approach him saying, teacher. The last interaction, Jesus says, you are wrong, 
twice. Not only are you wrong, you are quite wrong. But Jesus is right. He uses scripture positively. Notice here though. He says, you are right teacher. You have truly said. He's not quoting scripture here. He says, he is one and there is no other beside him. He is interpreting scripture. He is doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is rightly interpreting scripture. And not only, or excuse me, expositing and interpreting scripture. Not only that, he's applying it in the next section. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your understanding, with all your strength, and love one neighbor as oneself, it's more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's amazing. This is an impressive response. I mean, he knows the Old Testament rightly. I want you to see this in Psalm 40. There are many Psalms that speak of what God's desires, not just empty ritual, but Psalm 40 kind of brings this together. Picking up in verse 6 of Psalm 40. David here says in writing, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. My, oh my God, your law is within my heart. There is an understanding here. His mind is set on the things of God, not empty sacrifices. The law is within his heart. And what does he do out of that? What are his actions? What does his strength lead him toward? I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. If your heart loves the Lord, it won't stay there. To be hidden in your heart doesn't mean to be tucked away, throw away the key. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The understanding of what God desires. The heart where the law is written on and the heart that flows out in praise and declaring of the goodness of God. His all of his faculties are in agreement here. I think the scribe is picking up on that. We also saw this in Hebrews last week as we as we finished up. Look at Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. It'll be on the screen. Look at the first one. Through him, speaking of Christ here, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next verse, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The true sacrifice, loving God, loving your neighbor. This is consistent throughout the scriptures. And the scribe gets this right. But maybe he should have asked the question of the other scribe in Luke. Uh, how should I do this? Well, he doesn't. We'll get to that in a moment as we close. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is a remarkable statement. You are not far from the kingdom of God. That sounds good, right? This scribe might be an aberration from the rest. Or is he? Look how Jesus speaks of the scribe's. In verse 35, and Jesus taught them in the temple. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of God? He's, he's criticizing their interpretation of the law. Look at verse 38. Beware of the scribes who walk around with long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces. 
So what I want you to see from Jesus' final statement here is you, here's how you come near to the kingdom of God. You come to Jesus, you recognize his authority, you listen to him, you, you affirm him, you come near. But be careful here. Number two, you can come close but still die outside the gate. Close is not enough. Like those who got close to the ark to see what it was about, didn't believe enough to come in, who got close and knocked on the outside as the waters were rising. I've met countless, countless people with Sunday school answers. They know all the things to say. They can tell you the gospel backward and forward. They can quote scripture verbatim. Because in our culture, the ideas of Christianity are as pervasive as the knowledge of the law in Israel. But it's not just knowing these things. It's not just having this this mental idea. It must be true. There must be a transformation of heart. And in the gospel, there is no almost gold medals. Those who, who are a split second behind, there is either, and there is no participation trophies. You either are awarded, you either reach the crown or you don't. There are no participation trophies in the kingdom of God. Well, you know, little Johnny just showed up and he, and, and he, and he tried his best and he gave his effort. You can try your best. I don't care how strong you are, how good you are. As I think about those, um, those celebrate too early videos, I think are just hilarious. The people who have the, the uh, strong lead, the cyclists, the, 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 the runners, the, the swimmers, they're, they're, they're celebrating, you know, the uh, defensive backs who, who uh, get an interception and they're just showboating all the way down and the ball gets knocked out on the one yard line. This is this described. He's, he's celebrated. I'm there. I've got it all. I'm, I'm close. You know how many points you get for getting tackled on the one yard line? Zero. You know how many gold medals you get for slipping and falling right before the finish line? Zero. He's close, but he's not. So in conclusion of our text, the greatest expression of love for God and love for man is seen at the cross. Jesus didn't just say it. He walked what he talked. Think about it. His love for God, being completely devoted to the will of the Father to lay down his life because he loved the sheep. If you want to know what does it look like to love God and to love your neighbor, look at Jesus. Life was not easy for him. He did not do what was in his best interest. If he did what was in his best interest, he'd still be on the throne. He would have never taken on flesh. He would have never been mocked or spit at or or crucified. But because of his love for us, because he laid down his life for his friends, we have the picture of what the love of God is. I want to give you some quick application from this and it comes out of that the love of God and the love of Christ shows us how to love um, do I have time yeah let's go First uh, John this is the epistle of love if you are a believer you will love God and you will love people John expounds on this I want to read this quickly and just put you a couple pieces of application out of this notice all the love in this this passage 
It must begin with the love of God. And then it flows out of love for God and then love for one another. This is 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice here, the world loves to say God is love. God is love to apply God's love to all kinds of abominations. Keep reading. The love of God is that he sent his son that we might have love in, or life in him. That is the love of God. That is the basis of all the rest of this. Look at verse 10. In this, that love of God, sending his son, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The price we couldn't pay, he completed it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Notice how often the gospel comes into John's view of love. You cannot separate the gospel from the love of God and love for one another. Do not make it mysticism or humanism. It all comes from and is defined by the gospel. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear, ha- for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, amen. That should speak for itself. But a couple necessary questions here. Let's be honest. This is intimidating. It really is. When, when, when you read this, am I the only one who reads this and says, how do I love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? How could I possibly do that? I fail at this every day. I can't live up to that standard. I can't do that. I can't do that perfectly. I can't even love God. How can I love my neighbor? God's perfect. My neighbor definitely isn't. How do I, how do, I do that? I can't. You're right. You can't. In your own strength. You can't in your own righteousness. It's impossible. You can't in your own goodness. You can't in your own patience. If you take away the gospel from the love of God and love of man, it's impossible. But with the gospel, his strength is perfected in our weakness. We have his righteousness. We have his mind. He has given us a new heart. He has redeemed and renewed our minds. He has given us a new heart and new life. 
He has delivered our soul. And because of that, because God's love has transformed us spiritually in one day physically, then we can love him. And then we can love people. And we cannot separate the love of God from the gospel and the love for one another from the gospel. Okay, next natural question. How do we do this? What does this look like practically? One, or first, you cannot love God apart from knowing and knowing his love and returning it back to him. Can't just say, I love God without knowing that he loved you first. And you know that love by him sending Christ. There is no love of God and love of people without the gospel. I know it's a broken record, but you need to hear this. We need to hear this. Don't just have this warm and fuzzy feeling like, oh, I love God because I feel like it today. Or I love other people because I'm having a good day and I want to love people, but I don't love people when, I, when things are going difficult. If I, the, I, God's love for us is determined by the cross and Christ laying down his life, then so is our love for God. Whether we feel like it or not, it is not a feeling, it is an action. I choose to love God. I choose to love people. And if you understand the gospel and God's love for you, there will be a greatness and a joy. If you understand the depth of your sin, how could you not be so thankful and grateful to God that you praise him for what he's done in you? How often do you reflect on God's grace towards you? God's love. How often do you say, how could God love me and send his son for me and praise him for it? And if you see that, how could you not look at someone else made in the image of God? A sinner who is in desperate need of God's grace. If they're a believer, they have received God's grace. And we have all things in common. If they are not a believer, they need God's grace. It is easy to love people when you have that perspective. How often do you see people with the same kind of compassion and love and patience that God has with you? That's hard. And easy. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We so often distort things and make them comfortable or fit into our ideas. But you have, you have said it plainly. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This is the love of God that he sent his Son into the world that we might have life through him. You can't avoid it. Lord, let us embrace it and proclaim it. Let us say like the psalmist, I'm not going to give you spiritual exercise, burnt offerings, but a contrite heart. Hide your word in my heart and declare your redemption out of it. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to grow into your image. Help us to love one another. Help us to be faithful witnesses that we are your disciples, that we are loved by you. And that love is what the world needs. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son. 
Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for paying our debt. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.